0: Welcome to the Alternative Data Podcast. Welcome to the Alternative Data Podcast. I'm Mark Fleming Williams. In this episode, I speak to Ryan Preklor and Adam Kelleher of Barclays, who might have the largest alternative data team on the street. In our conversation, Ryan, Adam and I discuss how Barclays got into alternative data and the diverse types of projects the team gets involved in. Meanwhile, if you have a notable or new data set that you would like to discuss on the podcast, do get in touch. So in this episode, I'm joined by Ryan Pricklaw and Adam Kelleher of Barclays. Thank you very much for joining today, Ryan. Thank you very much. And Adam.
1: Yep. Thanks for having us. Fantastic.
0: Um, so Ryan, Adam, I'm very excited to have you both on the podcast. Um, Barclays is obviously a very big and um well, important investment bank. Um, well, all bank. In fact, not just a investment bank. But um, so delighted to have you both on. Um, why don't you briefly introduce yourselves and your backgrounds, and and perhaps and how you came to be involved in alternative data at at the bank. So, so Ryan, do you want to go first?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, maybe I'll start by just giving you a little bit of the structure of our team because it'll help to understand what uh, what we're talking about. So, you know, at at Barclays in Research, we have a team that primarily works with alternative data, which we call data and investment sciences. And that's split into two verticals, data science, which is run by Adam, which he'll talk about, and investment sciences, which is run by me. And the investment sciences team specializes in integrating alternative data and advanced empirical methods. So you just think machine learning, uh, but we also do a lot of other things, into the investment Process and Adam's team focuses on building out uh, the data science infrastructure, bringing in data, and then doing the heavy lifting around the algorithm development that we need to make uh, the data science part really work. So for myself, I got into this, uh, uh, you know, through what is probably a very traditional route, which is in my very early career I worked as an economist in a consulting firm. Uh, Later, I went to business school and. Moved into finance. I actually started uh, in Lehman Brothers in two thousand eight. Uh, it was an ill timed uh, choice then, but it all worked out. And I was able to stay in the business. I worked for a few years in investment banking. How was
0: it? How was it, Ryan? How was the? Was it? Was it fairly seamless? The the um, Lehman over to Barclays Capital. Well, like obviously, it felt like the end of the world. But how was the? How was the transition? were you still going to the same desk and still, you know, it's just rebranded, but everything else remained the same?
2: Yeah, as the most junior person there, literally, uh, it was extremely seamless. I mean, it, it didn't feel like much of anything uh, to me. There were a few months where we didn't really do much, uh, but I think that was true of all investment bankers at that time. And then, you know, I think that my overall experience was was really a lot the same. I worked with the people who I had expected to work with. I did the kind of deals that I had expected to to do. So, you know, really from the you know view of the most junior person, it wasn't really so different. I think if you were a very senior person, it did look very different. But uh, that was yeah, sure. you know, way out of my experience at the time.
0: You, you joined in August 2008, and then September 2008 obviously happened. So basically, you were kind of a summer associate at Lehman, and then you were joined full time into Barclays Capital, it, it, something like that. That's right. Um, <laughs> but um, but brilliant. Okay, so 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 you're a, you're a Barclays lifer, le, le, uh, as you were. I am.
2: Yeah, I've been at Barclays a shockingly long time, much longer than I ever would have expected, but it's been it's been a really good experience. And in part because from you know investment banking, I switched to then credit strategy research, so we sat on the desk and my specialties were, you know, starting what is now I think considered to be quantum mental. so you know bridging the gap between quant and uh, fundamental discretionary investment approaches. And then macro work, and then through all of that, eventually it became clear that we needed to do better with data. And so, you know, working with my boss, we proposed to create this team that would do data science.
0: When did it become clear?
2: Uh, I mean, it became clear to us around 2016 or 2017, and I have been then you know, running this data science effort, or at least my part of it, uh, since the beginning of 2018. So we've been doing this for almost five years.
0: How did it become clear?
2: So. Uh it became clear because we had three different teams who were all doing something sort of similar but in a different domain. So we had the credit strategy team, and we had the U.S. equity strategy team, and then we had a quant portfolio strategy team. And all of us were interested in understanding what the uh, total leverage was, like, you know, what's the leverage in an index? So, like, if you look at the S&P 500, how much... You know how levered, how much debt do each of those com- or those companies have collectively? And each of us wrote a report about that, and each of us had a completely different answer. And in fact, two of the answers were sort of in opposition to each other. Like one team would say, "Oh, you know, it's low and it's still falling," and a different team would say, "It's high and it's still rising." Now, there are some very like nuanced issues with how you calculate leverage across a whole index. Um, and those, of course, we could work out, and that was some of the difference. But just from the foundation, part of the difference was it turned out that each of us were using data from a different vendor. And so even if you know we agreed on the methodology and which methodology worked, we were still going to get different answers. And so that led to this idea of like, well, look, what we need is some sort of central data function so that we can bring together all the different bits of data that we have into a common platform, and that sort of kicked it off. And so that was all around, yeah, that was all around conventional data. Oh, sorry.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. That was going to be my next question. So that was all di- different sources of conventional data. So, so all data isn't in the picture yet. Uh,
2: but as soon as we started thinking about what's the infrastructure to do this, it became absolutely clear that a big part of the value is going to be extended into alternative data, which was something which you know was already known, already sort of understood to be used at least uh, by some people on the, On the buy side, mostly, I think, at that time. Uh, But absolutely something where if we did not move in that direction, we were going to be at a serious competitive disadvantage.
1: And that's probably about the time when uh, I entered the picture, I think, uh, if I remember kind of the chronology, right? Uh, So, uh, you know, I was working at BuzzFeed at the time. Um, I took kind of the more conventional path of a data scientist, I think. Uh, I studied physics uh, in grad school, so got my doctorate there. Um, was actually studying uh, network theory and how it applied in politics. So actually scraping the political blogosphere with my identical brother, um, and understanding how information spread across it, followed that, uh, to join my brother actually over at Buzzfeed, um, to study virality there. We did something called the pound project, which made a big impact in the ad industry at the time. Um, that kind of propelled us forward to, uh, I, I became interested in causal inference, um, at the time. And, uh. Kind of grew that interest into uh, a blog, which became quite popular. Did a bunch of talks around the city, uh, New York Times, Spotify, a few other companies. Um, ended up teaching it at Columbia, and uh, realizing that if I really quickly, wanted to, just quickly get- on that,
0: Adam. So you were you were essentially you were um, able to measure essentially what the human wants to click on, what the human mind is 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 most interested in clicking on, and so then you could find those find those. Um, you know, uh, touch points, and then you could, uh, feed it back through the, through the system into the journalist to say, right, this is what you need to write because that's what the, that's what, that's what the, the customer wants to wants to click on. Is that right?
1: It's more like, you know, we, th- I think that's, that's a good synopsis. You know, we, we wanted to see, how content spreads across the internet. You know, is it one person sharing to another, to another, which is kind of, I think, our common perception of it? Um, Or is it being broadcasted out just by kind of big Twitter sites or Twitter pages or Facebook pages or otherwise? Um, It turns out it's a bit of a a mixture between the two. And um, we we could try to leverage our understanding of how the depth of this sharing went to try to generate more viral content. Um, and it really distinguish it from the stuff that was kind of broadcasted out otherwise. So kind of fun, uh, fun work there.
0: And it was so that would have required a deep or developed a deep understanding of social social networks and social media and and how they interlock and and what being going viral on Twitter means uh, versus going viral on Instagram or TikTok.
1: Or well, absolutely. But what's interesting is it wasn't going viral on just one thing. You know, this drove a, a more cross-platform strategy at the time where uh, something would start on Facebook and then t- jump over to Twitter and start propagating there, then from Twitter back on to, to some other site. Um, so we could actually trace it from one platform to another, and that was the big uh, advantage there. It was actually cross-platform uh, technology.
0: You could have been very useful in the in the COVID um, uh, situation, couldn't you? <laughs> That's very, right. Very similar. Very <laughs> well, similar. it's funny. Oh.
1: We, we did do some viral modeling kind of in the early days of, uh, of COVID and, and understood the, um, uh, the reproduction number, uh, measured it, compared it with some literature, and was kind of on the mark there. Um, checked out how uh, it was spreading throughout the city based on location data. Um, just really interesting stuff.
0: Fantastic. So you were you were coming to Barclays,
1: right? So we so I came over to Barclays, realizing that if I wanted to to do the kind of hard causal inference problems in a, in a real way, I had to do it at a place that was uh, number one incentivized to collect lots of observational data. And number two had the resources to uh, to put into developing those to a point where we could build big comprehensive models, um, and that's something that we've gotten to, uh, I think, in more recent times, really the past year or so.
0: Brilliant. Well, thank you. That's that's a very good uh, summary from both of you. So here we are today. Um, so uh, Ryan, you yeah, what does it what does the team look like, and what do you go, How would you get
2: your arms around what you do for a living? Yeah, absolutely. So. Uh, between the two teams, I think you know we are a very large team. So I think we are, if we look sort of across what we know of Wall Street, we're one of the bigger or biggest data science teams, um, and that includes you know sell side and buy side as far as we know. Now I'm sure there are a few folks who have have more people, but uh, we've grown a lot, and I think we've got a lot of a lot of talent and a lot of capacity to do things. In terms of what the team looks like, um, I think it maybe looks just a touch different from, uh, you know, sort of a standard data science team. I think we do have a lot of folks who, who look th- similar to what you'd see other places. We have a lot of people with PhDs. In particular, we have a lot of people with PhDs in physics. I'm, I'm not sure what it is about physicists, but uh, they mm-hmm. certainly seem to, to fit really well into the data science world. Uh, but we also have, then, people who have come from backgrounds like consulting or ESG uh, and some from a more traditional research background where they are self-taught data scientists, where you know, they've learned Python on their own, built their own projects. And so you know we're a little bit of a blend, I think, in terms of that. And as far as the work that we do is concerned, uh, most of what we do is writing research. So our role in the research department is, first of all, we are independent research writers. And a lot of what we are trying to do is to serve for data science, the role that traditional investment research serves on the sell side, which, um, you know, for people who might not be as familiar with the sell side uh, research model, I I think almost the most important piece of what research does is they're a a repository of institutional knowledge. And so if you're on the buy side, and you want to learn about a company or a situation or a new product or a country, if you're doing international work, um, a new currency, you call a research analyst to get you started in that, you know, how does this work? How does it fit in? Why is it valued this way? What are the models that people use? Can you give me your model so I can get started? And you know, that is most of the value that research is providing to people. And so what we're doing within that, first of all, is providing that same function for data science so that if people are doing data science work, they can call us up and say, well, you know, we would like to do some data science work on something. What vendors do we look at? What kind of infrastructure will we need to build? How are we going to make this work to get the kind of answers out that we, that we want to do it? Now to do that as well as we can, we work with... And we write our own independent investment research, and and that's because I think that for us to be great, great advisors to our clients who are doing investment research, we need to do our own investment research with our data and our toolkit, so that you know, we know how it works, we know what fails, we know what doesn't fail, we know how to go fast with things, uh, we know which things will take a lot of time, and so you know in the past year we've written more than five hundred research reports, uh, most of them in collaboration with some other research analysts, and a few of them. Uh, independent and, and on our own. Do they, do, do
0: they look like um, the traditional research that you're talking about in that? Do they have a buyer or a sell and a, and a reason for our conviction? And do they look like that or are they kind of set up differently?
1: Yeah, I think the most interesting difference is probably the uh, the methods pieces, which are really completely different from uh, traditional finance research. Um, you know, I think part of what uh, what Ryan's suggesting that we want to be a repository of institutional knowledge extends to how do you do data science in a finance context? And so some of the things we'll, we'll do is write reports assessing methods for um, tagging documents with company names, for example. Um, so really technical hard data stuff that's that's very specific to application and finance um, in a way that is both uh, unique in the sense that there's just not stuff out there, open source tools that do it already, um, but uh, but specifically useful for our clients who are trying to to use these data to inform their investment decisions. So again, kind of tying it directly to tickers, for example, in that example.
0: It's quite interesting that, um, in that a lot of this space is people doing the same stuff and um, would rather die than let you know what they're doing. Um, Whereas your model is, this is what we're doing and we're gonna publish quite clearly all the ways that you can do it at home type thing.
1: Yeah, and we've even gone as far as open sourcing some of our code, so you can actually find that on uh, on GitHub, uh, just as not even just to client, but to the general public. Um, but in, of course, it's aimed toward our clients to make their make it easier for them to work with uh, with vendor data specifically.
0: Um, so what's the, so clearly if you're a hedge fund, then you are, um, you're motivated to do this work in order to make a lot of money yourself and, and, um, you know, you don't want any, anyone else to be doing it for, you know, obvious reasons, um, from your perspective, where what's the what's the goal? What's the aim? Are you trying to um is it for the greater good of of Barclays and the and the reputation of Barclays and the brand? And so every all the all the potential clients who are wondering which investment bank to use for their MA and and all their all their different needs, then they'll then they'll come to Barclays um because you know they see Barclays doing the best stuff. Is that is that the idea?
2: So I think it's it's more of a client facilitation. So, I mean, going back to that analogy of traditional research, you know, no person on the buy side, I think, calls up a bank and says, you know, tell me your buys, and then turns around and puts them in the portfolio, right? Their job is to come up with their own work to make that particular decision. and. Therefore, what research does, is not tell them what to buy or what to sell or how to make that decision. But what we're doing is giving them the pieces that they need that then they don't have to develop themselves so that they can focus their time and effort on doing you know, their truly differentiated research, the thing which is going to set their decision-making process apart from other people's decision-making processes, and skip just the time it takes to invest in, oh, you know, to Adam's you know, talking about some of the methods notes, well, how do I you know, take a news document and decide that this news document is talking about Google the company rather than Google a search engine or my personal experience with Gmail, and then use that as a piece of information as a feedstock, right? It's not a real value add for them to say, I have a better way of tagging the fact that this is referring to companies and that this particular company is the one referred to. And so if we can create that for them, it creates a lot of value uh, for all of our clients and they can all use it. And then each of them can take what they create out of that and do then their individual process that helps them to create a lot of value. And that's where I think we fit into the into the process.
0: It seems, and, and maybe it's it's no coincidence that you say you have a lot of PhDs on board, but it, it feels a little bit kind of... Um academia adjacent um in that you are putting out an awful lot of stuff which to an extent yes your clients come first but you're also you don't seem to be too worried about it getting into the wider market and perhaps going viral in a in a buzzfeed kind of way um and so people people seeing these these notes and so it being you know you're you're essentially doing research which is furthering general understanding um do you does that feel does that feel kind of you know is is there something there are you are you are you a little bit like a well paid academics
1: I think the methods methods notes are probably the most on the on the border there um, I think they can occasionally walk the line between academia and application um, we definitely keep it focused toward the application in the sense that we don't really fully flesh out for example deep performance statistics of things um, and really favor instead. Uh, high-level, actionable evaluations of, of, of uh, uh, algorithmic approaches often. Um, we did the, the entity tagging uh, paper, I think, is a good example of this. Um, there are a bunch of academic papers for how to, how to do entity tagging in documents. Um, we kept it surface level in the sense that we just tested out these different approaches, see which ones work better um, in very actionable terms, you know, which ones get the tags right more often, which ones discover more of the tags that are in the documents, um, and publish it for, for people to use as a resource in that way. Um, this, uh, what, what do you think, Randy? Do you have more to add there?
0: Are you publishing on Google Scholar? Uh,
1: no, no. So we're, we're keeping these. Um, we, we did talk at a conference about that one, uh, but these are in our internal platform for our clients to use. So it really is directed at our clients.
2: Yeah, we do actually, we do have some academic uh, work. Right. So uh, for example, we've done some work on uh, ESG, uh, which has been published academically, uh, just as an example. You know, I think I think the way that it is sort of correct to think of it as being a little academic, I think that we have a tremendous freedom to explore things that we think are interesting because a lot of those things are also commercial, right? You know, I think that there's very little that we could do if if you were to say, oh, look, there's absolutely no commercial application. We're doing deep research, which is going to pay off in 100 years. You know, I, I think we'd probably get some raised eyebrows. But... Uh, but the reality is, f- when we take a bunch of you know physicists and applied social scientists and people who are interested in the world, we can give them a lot of freedom, and an amazing toolkit, and an amazing set of data that they can come and do amazing research. A lot of which is based on the things that they find interesting. And so, I, I think in that regard, it does you know, have a resemblance to, to academia.
0: Fantastic. So let's talk. Uh, let's talk. Talk more um, brass tacks. Uh, what 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 data is coming into the into the team and how?
2: So we have what I think is a very complete stack of alternative data, uh, which extends from geolocation data, credit card data, a lot of different kinds of text data for uh, various kinds of of text processing, and I think it's a stack that uh, you know looks sort of label for label a lot like what you would see at sort of the best data science teams that are working in the investment world. Uh, I think that one of the things that distinguishes us a little bit is that we have a really strong bias towards very raw data. And so if you think about all the different kinds of alternative data vendors in the world, there are people who sell, you know, essentially feed stocks. And then there are, I think, the majority of the alternative data vendors who sell some sort of transformed version of of something that came from a feed stock we are mostly buying those raw feedstock type data and working with them at that most granular level
0: and so and does that involve are you trying to un- uncover new feedstocks as well are you that raw as well are you going and trying to chip away at the at the at the, at the at the at the at the you know the cliff the the mine yourself or are you um or do you are you generally approaching existing um uh providers
2: Uh, it's mostly existing providers. You know, we do have a few data sets and data products that come from Barclay's own proprietary data. Um, For the most part, I don't think, you know, we're doing too much sort of raw creation. And that's just more of a practical, you know, practical issue. Uh, You know, of course, you can do that with web scraping and and some things like that. But um, for the most part, that is an expensive endeavor. And you know, I think that most of the alternative data world is essentially based on data exhausts, right? So it's things that are created for some other business reason that then they look at and say, oh, well, you know, also we could sell this sort of bit of data, which is coming off of this. And so, uh, you know, it's really sort of trying to find and, and buy those uh, from from other places. And we are a purchaser, right? So, you know, really, we are like any other buyer of of alternative data out there.
0: Why are you going for the raw material in this way? Why, why, uh, yeah, why, why, why are you focusing on
2: those? So uh, it's, it's a philosophical choice for us. So I think that the thing that most distinguishes alternative from conventional data is the fact that, you know, usually with conventional data, you just sort of take it as, as given right? That, you know, you pull up Bloomberg and you type in the little code and you get a time series and then it just is what it is. And then you can take that and you can try to correlate it with something. You can try to put it into a bigger model. You can try to use it to explain or predict what's going to happen with returns. And But basically you take that, you just think of that day as being like, okay, it is what it is. You know, I pulled down the GDP series and it's just, that's what GDP is. And with alternative data, it's, it's very different because with alternative data, there are hundreds and hundreds of choices that people make when they are creating those time series or creating those cross sections that have to do with how the data gets output. And the nuances and control over those decisions are, you know, for one thing, really what we wanna be able to provide for our clients, right? So we wanna be able to understand, here's how the choices that were made in the creation of this end alternative data product that transformed it from a bunch of basically unintelligible stuff at the top into something sort of meaningful at the bottom, affects the kinds of questions it can be used to answer and affects the answers that you're gonna get from those questions. There's a lot of biases in that. There's a lot of uh, things that change the variance. And a lot of those are linked to the choices that people make. And so by starting with the most raw feedstock and investing the time and effort into doing all of the transformations down the pipeline, most of which, by the way, are done by Adam's team, Uh, you know, we are able to basically be the most knowledgeable. And so if we're trying to sell institutional knowledge, right, if our idea is to say we want to be able to tell people, you know, when is this data going to work for solving your particular problem? We need to understand, you know, how was that created? Why was it created that way? What things were dropped? What things were not dropped? What kind of models were applied? What kind of shortcuts were taken? And, and do that ourselves, so that we are able to be the best advisor and the most knowledgeable about how all of those things work. And and so that's why we work mostly from, from raw feedback.
1: We we can be you know concrete about it. There's some um, some some data sets. Uh, I think grammar rules for natural language processing are probably a great example of this, where um, we we want to write a rule that captures a statement in a document. Um, so something like maybe a company intends to uh, increase their debt, for example. Um, and we can write a write some logic that parses the text and uses grammatical dependence to, to really generalize across lots of different types of statements, um, and then test that to see how well it works. Um, often we'll find it's got something like you know 90% accuracy when we test it, um, but then when we try to run it on a new sample of data, that'll drop to something like 70%, sometimes as low as 60% accuracy. Um, so really substantial drop. Um, and we know that a lot of people, when they write these types of rules, write the initial rule, they capture what they think they're capturing um, in their, the set of documents they, they built it for, but they don't test it in generalization. Um, and so they don't do an additional layer of refinement we do in a lot of cases um, to, uh, to make sure it's performing well out of sample. Um, so that's just one example that, that mm-hmm. makes it concrete, where you can get really material performance differences um, because of the nuances of the way that you build your techniques. Um, that, uh, you know, if you're buying this from a third party or if you're working with somebody else within your organization and sourcing this, and you don't know exactly where the detections came from, um, then this, this is a question that might just not be answered for you. You're not really sure where, uh, where those tags are coming from. Mm.
0: Um, so you talked about 500 or so, um, investment research, data research notes, um, if i looked down that list if i had access to it um what would there be anything you know that you've done a lot of or anything which would kind of be clearly like okay there's 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 an awful lot of i don't know consumer consumer transaction data going into this or is there anything which you would which you would pull out as being um a a trend across all your work that tends to characterize your work and also in terms of what it tends to be finding out are you finding out macro you you Writing about macro issues, are you writing about specific sectors, or are you doing an awful lot about Facebook, or you know that that kind of thing? Or, 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 yeah. So, what what does your what does your work look like as a as a whole?
2: Yeah, I like I like the breadth that we get to have because I, you know the sh- the shortest answer is that we've done all of those things, but um, I, I think it tends to be very responsive to the conditions and the time. So, you know, when COVID was first starting it was really when we were tr- starting to hit our stride as a team. And at that time, we were doing just a a ton of work to understand, you know, what is going on with COVID, how do we track the course of the pandemic, how do we, you know, find cases and do case measurement, um, what kind of models can we apply? Adam, you know, then took geolocation data and built models to understand, you know, transmission and where are, you know, where are the most transmittable places and where people are interacting and therefore likely to be transmitting, you know. And, but it was all oriented around COVID because that was the the big question of the day.
1: Yeah, Most- I think in terms of content, you know, it's we we did a series that kind of showed people what was going on in the world uh, at the time. I think, Brian, you could probably talk about our high frequency indicator series. Um, we we did some very bespoke stuff where we detailed viral uh, viral models, viral tra- viral transition models. And what are the big drivers of that, and what were the potential policy impacts on those drivers, things like transmissibility and so on? Um, And then we did some deeper, kind of um, heavily data driven pieces. Um, the geolocation one is a good example. We looked at a graph theoretic measure of betweenness where we kind of pixelated all of New York and said, what are the most connective places? You know, which, which pixels connect the most people together? Um, and came up with a, a measure of um, transmissibility kind of by place. And I found lots of bars and restaurants t- tended to be the, uh, the top ones there. Um, but Ryan, maybe you have more to, to add there on the especially high frequency indicators. I think that was a cool example.
2: Yeah, so, you know, we have done a lot of different things at the time, as I said, we started looking at, at high frequency indicators. We still do a series of high frequency indicators, but over time it shifted. We actually recently just dropped all of the COVID stuff. It seems like that's not, you know, something which is moving anyone's investment decisions anymore. And then very recently we've been doing a lot of work around the consumer, and you know that consumer work tends to be, you know, more focused on cards data because it's sort of the most obvious source. And I think to a lesser extent news and uh even social media and other things that look like that but that's sort of a shift over time you know it it was sort of the less important question a year or two ago when it was just very clear that the consumer was strong and people were spending and things were coming back from covid and so you know then it tended to be more nuanced now it's like okay well look let's get a sense of what's happening with the consumer why are people making the decisions they're making Um, and even starting to think more about some macro data uh, to think about, you know, what's the current economic conditions? How do these compare to economic conditions in the past, and how does it help us to you know, make and form good expectations about what might be coming down the road?
0: I mean the problem a problem with trying to do that if you're trying to think about macroeconomic conditions is it, it looks a bit like the 70s at the moment or potentially you know if we last time we had major inflation um of the of the type that that seems to be on the on the cards um and alternative data if that's if if alternative data is your sweet spot then I I imagine it might be quite hard to find a data set that goes back that far
2: Yeah this is this is where I think our approach really works well so You know, on that question, one of the things we did, which was, you know, honestly, a really enjoyable and pretty small and straightforward project, was we looked at different distance measures uh, from the data science literature, and we overlaid them on economic data to try to understand what, you know, historic period was closest in terms of the kinds of data and actions that we were seeing, you know, and like what people were talking about, we also found that those periods were in the 70s. In fact, sort of mid-1974 was what we found to be sort of the most similar period to now. And that had to do with, you know, GDP growth, inflation, but also, you know, had the Fed already started to take action and raise rates, uh, which I think is a very important part of that question. Um, And so, you know, it agreed, but it also found a sort of a more specific kind of answer. But that was a really good and interesting way to apply data science, you know, sort of writ large to, you know, much more traditional data sets, right? So it didn't necessarily have to be alternative data. And, you know, I think a lot of what we try to do is to think, what's the right tool for this job? Is it that we need more data? And I think you know, both Adam and I agree, and probably everyone on our team agrees that almost always the best thing to do is just bring more data into the equation. But sometimes it's about you know really refining down and saying you know we actually have all the data that's available, and what we need is a better model, and maybe that model is not the traditional model that people have applied here, but some more new machine learning inspired model, uh, and so we're able to do that, and uh, you know. What I think is that there's it's not about just having one tool and having that hammer and trying to hit everything with it. It's about being able to have the full toolkit and be able to apply you know, exactly the right tool for exactly the right situation.
1: Yeah, another good example of that early on, uh, we were looking at uh, market power um, and uh, um, how, that, uh, um, how that could be quantified. We had a bunch of uh, just corporate filings data, so just reported numbers from all these companies. Um, and uh, as well as some kind of broader economic data. And we're able to find a collection of measures using uh, just simple principal components analysis, analysis, a really workhorse tool from uh, data science uh, to to measure uh, directions of variation for all these data and found uh, one of the directions which looked a lot like more or less market power. Um, So it actually turned out to be a pretty simple um, outcome, just applying novel methods to traditional financial data.
0: What do you mean by market power? Sorry. Uh,
1: so uh, things like, um, uh, uh, let's see, ability to hire more people, for example. So competitiveness in the hiring marketplace would be one example. Um, but uh, essentially just um, firms have, uh, there, there are a few ways to quantify it kind of with, um, with classic measures. Um, the Tobin's Q is probably one of the, the correlates you might think of. Where it's you know how, how much over replication cost is this company valued? So sort of what is the intangible value there? Um, so it's it's difficult to quantify in, in careful terms. But uh, um, yeah.
0: so um, have you you've you guys you've got a very big team and you've got access to an awful lot of data. Um, have you do you feel you've had success in being able to? Bring multiple alternative data sets, perhaps from different t- data types um, to bear on a single problem and 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 use them to complement each other to kind of fill in more of the mosaic as they say
2: yeah i think uh, I think that's been one of our strengths so one of I think my favorite pieces of work that we did was going back to sort of earlier earlier in the pandemic, which we, we started this work in late 2020 we did a big deep dive into the future of real estate and that was, I think, really the first time that we had brought together all of these different pieces from all of these different threads to, you know, help draw a very big picture of the world. And so we looked at that time at office real estate, at residential real estate, and at uh, commercial real estate, uh, so like retail more than uh, than warehouses. And we were able to start with some very conventional data. So think about, you know, home sales or um, building sales. But then if you know, think about the big question at the time, and, and actually it's interesting because it sort of remains the big question today, which is, will people go back to the office? And from our toolkit, we could do a lot of different things with that. So first of all, our analysts did a survey, which um, you know we helped them with and helped them to analyze. But we are also able to uh, look at job postings and measure how many job postings allow people to work from home and look at the shift in that. And you, know, you saw a very clear pickup. So pre-pandemic, there were some, then the pandemic starts, and then suddenly you have this real real level up where now more jobs are allowing work from home. And we can put that in the context of what we got from the survey, which was people said, oh, look, well, okay, I enjoy working from home, and management's saying, you know, we are also having success with people working from home. We were able to look at uh, corporate transcripts and extract where management teams were talking about work from home and the sentiment that they had around it. And we could see that, you know, when a lot of management teams were talking about it at the time, and when they were talking about it, they were talking about it with like overwhelmingly positive sentiment. We were able to take geolocation data and track, you know, how many people used to work you know, were at offices that were no longer at offices and what you know what were the counts of people who were going to the office and how many times a week were people showing up at the office and could see that oh look, no one's really going to the office and it was very early in the pandemic when we first did it. And we later were able to do a refresh where we could dig into you know how many days per week are people going? What's the biggest day? Uh, how do the peaks of what's going on in offices now compared to the peaks previously? because as the work from home debate has evolved, one of the one of the big questions in commercial real estate was, uh, you know, is it the number of people who are going to the office? Is it the number of people times the number of the days of week that they're going to the office, or is it the peak? And h- what is going to govern how much office space people need to have compared to how much they needed to have before the pandemic? And so we were able to attack this across multiple dimensions and put all of it together into a sort of a single big coherent narrative. Which you know, even at the time in late 2020, we thought that you know, work from home was a permanent shift. It was something that was going to be with us for a long time, uh, and you know, even in companies where people um, did eventually go back to the office, that they were going to mostly be allowed to have more time working from home. And I think that you know, all of those things that we talked about actually had played out very much uh, the way we expected because we were able to take a very complete view of of the world.
0: That so that's very big picture and thematic, um, and. So a lot of people on the buy side talk about the combining data sets headache, you know, the challenge of mm-hmm. combining data sets. And probably what they're talking about is more of the uh, the the type of combining. So at the end of it, they need to know whether to buy and when to buy perhaps a stock or, or, or something like that. Do you see the difference? And is that is that something that you, you kind of would work on as well?
1: That's such an important question. You know, We've built a tool internally we call our panel tool, which we use uh, just to put together panels of financial data and alternative data uh, together. Um, so internally, it kind of handles all the joins required across the different data sets to make that work. Um, and So we've, we've turned that into something where it takes just two lines of code, for example, to run a traffic series for geolocation data. Um, and then it's pretty easy to put that back onto a panel of securities in the cases where that makes sense. Um, We've started. that's actually the tool that we started open sourcing. Um, it's about 18 different datasets currently um, for our internal version of it. Um, we've released one of the modules for it um, already with a plan to release more kind of slowly over time, um, but especially as we get more feedback from people. So it, it's certainly a difficult problem. It's one that I think there needs to be a more generic solution for. Um, and I think we're, we're trying to build that out now ourselves
0: brilliant um coming back to the uh coming back to the to the kind of the model where where you sit um who are the clients in this who is interested in in who who are you who is your audience that you have in mind when you are creating this work, is it is it uh, massive corporations? Is it is it the buy side? Is it hedge funds who are coming to you? And if it is hedge funds who are you know the most likely to be listening to this podcast of these people that we're talking about, um, are they? Uh, do you reckon they're just using you for ideas, or you, how heavily do you think they might be relying on you? Um, uh, how, how about that?
2: Yeah, I mean, it is mostly people on the buy side, uh, of which I think hedge funds are you know a very big, uh, very big share of that clientele, not not the only client because we, we sort of serve the whole range of investors, but certainly uh, hedge funds fit in that. I think uh, I think increasingly what we see is that there are data scientists who are working, you know, almost at, I would say almost at all buy side firms now of all sorts. Um, you know, I think if you go back to when we first started, it was something that was relatively uh, relatively restricted to just a few bigger funds. But now I think it's expanded quite a bit. But even within that, you know, one of the things about being in our position is that we have more concentrated resources to serve them than most of those individual uh, buy-side funds have to spend on data science. You know, so the way to think about that is, you know, a a lot of funds might hire one data scientist or two data scientists, or maybe have a small team, because that's really what their scale supports. And so they're always trying to think through, you know, what can we do with our scale and how, um, how can we make the best use of, of our resources? And I think that that's really where we come in from the data science perspective, right? That, you know, if we're facing an enormous fund that has 50 or 100 people on their data science team and has access to the full range of alternative data, there are peers, and I think that we have a lot to say to them, and there's a lot that we can do with them in terms of having you know, good conversations about what are the best practices and you know, what's the best kind of infrastructure and what's the best way to do things. But um, you, you know, that's a it's a friendly conversation, but it's not necessarily one where they are absolutely depending on us for being able to get an answer. When instead you have a single data scientist. Who is working with maybe a, a large group of analysts? They are much more constrained, and that's where we can be much more useful because they can come to us and say, "Oh, you know, I'm interested in in trying out or working with this particular data set, but I don't know if the cost of it and the cost of me getting up to speed with working with it is going to help you know help us enough to justify me spending that cost." And uh, that's something that we do a lot. If we you know try, it out. we'll work with people. We'll talk about our experience with uh, a particular data type or a particular uh, research question that we would address with that, help them get grounded in terms of what it will take, you know, if they buy from this vendor, which is relatively raw compared to this vendor, which gives you a relatively complete, you know, end product, but maybe one where you have a little bit less control over, you know, what the answers look like. Um, and then hopefully from that help them get to something where, where they're creating a lot of value. I think the other thing that we do a lot of, and it's probably actually more than half of you know, the conversations that we have with clients are just around ideas. You know, you had asked about um, places where we sort of put that mosaic together for a single company. And we have done a lot of work like that. You know, you can look at, um, you know, a single company. And uh, for example, we had done some work on Peloton with our Peloton analyst, where we looked at sort of everything we looked at their subscriber churn. We looked at their rate of sell through for different kinds of equipment and what that looked like using you know, cards data. We also looked at uh, the kind of attention they were getting in social media and what's the sentiment about what people are are saying about it. And mm. we looked at the historic path for penetration for fitness devices and we're able to bring all those together for Peloton. And in that case, you know, we're probably going to be involved in the conversation. Uh, with the buy-side Peloton Analyst to talk about those individual pieces so that they can decide how much of that work they want to put into their own decision uh, or where they see a jumping off point for them to to dig in a little bit deeper as well.
1: Yep. Nice. And we're, uh, of course, also happy to share code with our clients too if they want to turn something some insight from that into a process on their end. Uh, you know, We want people to be able to get started with that. And so uh, we're willing and, and actually happy to, to be very transparent on our methods for doing these things as well.
0: Fantastic. Um, the so broadly, um, I, I I just wonder, and I think it's it's hopeful. I feel like in the investment management world, there is a relatively small pool of 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 uh, sophisticated hedge funds who have made alternative data their thing, and who have been doing it for ten years, uh, and or five five ten years, and um, they are the kind of the the traditional users of alternative data. Um, and then there's a big the heavyweight um i i you could say sleepier um or slower moving um set of perhaps more long only investors um the rest of the investment management world who would have great fun with alternative data if they um hire the data scientists or 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 put the money and the and the time into the resource to to make it happen and they I feel like the the sector has been waiting a long time for them to wake up to the possibilities and think that this is, you know, this is what we should be using. I just wonder if Barclays might be a route for them to realize, because basically it seems to me that what you're showing them is a this is there's a lot of there's a lot of money to be made here and, you know, a lot of insights to be to be to be garnered and B this is how you do it as well. Do you, do you see that process? Do you see that being a potential, um, a role of Barclays in the market, um, for, for, for your clients?
2: Yeah, I think we certainly hope so. You know, I think where a lot of that comes from too, is to be able to talk, you know, very coherently about the business case for it. You know, I think one of, one of the things that I saw when we were first starting out and I think we've seen over and over again is, uh, you know it can be hard to create a data science team which is sufficiently commercial you know which is to say there's a lot of different moving parts a lot of different decisions that people need to make in terms of who to hire what kind of skills to look for and then what infrastructure to onboard or build do you build it yourself do you just buy it from somebody and then in terms of what data stack you know what do you buy what do you build what do you bring in how do you address it that um, I think it's been I think that's been part of the slowness of adoption in many cases is that is really sometimes hard to understand the commercials and understand the cost benefit and get it to a point where the benefits are really helping to meet the costs and I I actually think that in a lot of cases that's where we've been able to be really helpful we have done projects for people where they say, we're interested in maybe bringing on this data set to answer this particular question. And we would say, well, we don't have exactly that particular one you're looking at, but we have one that's similar. We'll do a pilot project and we'll look to see, did this answer the question that you thought it would? And we'll tell you how much work we put into it. And in a lot of cases, people said, well, okay, I'm glad that you did that. Turns out, I don't think we could get the value out of it that we need to justify it. But I think that that you know, being able to do that really does move the industry forward as a whole. Because, you know, I think where, you know, where I think we've seen things go wrong is where people over invest in some arena, where it either in the way that they chose to do it, or just from the nature of the product that they were using, it had real, really no hope of generating enough value to be a business improver for, you know, the people who were doing it. And so I, I think that a lot of the path forward is, you know, what's the business case here? Are we going to make enough money if we invest this money in this as a business? And what kind of investment should we be making as a business? Because, yep. you know, that's the big question that, that you have to think about from an operating perspective.
1: Yeah, and I think a lot of that investment is on the, the infrastructure side and the tech side as well. And so I think a lot of people have found it useful to talk through their stack with us. Um, where we'll basically tell them how we operate with these different data sets, the scale required in terms of compute and storage, um, costs associated with that, and really help them kind of weigh their options about what to invest in, what not to, and, and where the value is for them.
0: It seems to me that you guys are a wonderfully positive influence on the alternative data market in terms of doing the work and helping others do the work and evangelizing and, and creating and, and and having this huge team who is working on these problems and um, yeah, it sounds like a it sounds like a really a positive um, as I say a positive influence. So um, so Ryan and Adam, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today and um, and sharing your experience and your thoughts um, and uh, and long may it continue.
1: Thanks for having us, Mark.
2: Yeah, thank you.